When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is David Crow, our banking editor. We're also joined down the line from Moscow by Max Seddon. And our guest this week is Harit Talwar, the head of consumer banking at Goldman Sachs. This week, we'll take a look at RBS as it strives to find a new chief executive to replace Ross McEwen. Secondly, a look at Goldman Sachs and its consumer banking operations, particularly Marcus. And finally, over to Ukraine, where Max Seddon has been looking at Privat Bank, the country's biggest bank, and how it plays a big political role. First, though, to RBS. And David, you've just broken a story about the bank looking for a new chief executive in the form of Ian Stewart, possibly, a senior HSBC executive who, if he were indeed appointed, would surprise many people because there's been a favourite internal candidate for quite some many months, Alison Rose. What exactly is happening? So we've known for some time now that Ross McEwen was going to leave the bank. We knew that in advance of him officially announcing so in April. And in November, Alison Rose, who runs the business bank at RBS, was elevated to this new role, which was de facto deputy chief executive. And people thought that that was pretty much a done deal. However, the chairman, Sir Howard Davies, is very keen to do a full and thorough search that includes both internal and external candidates. And one of the people in the frame is Ian Stewart. He runs HSBC's ring-fenced UK bank, which is de facto a standalone operation, really. It's based in Birmingham and has its own board and so on. And it's actually a very large bank by some measures. It's as big as Lloyd's. And so he is one of the names in the frame. And, you know, our sources tell us that Alison Rose is still a very strong contender, but it is interesting that they are talking to other people. Yeah, because she had been seen for a long time as a shoe-in candidate, hadn't she? Has she done something wrong? I don't know if she's done anything wrong. I don't think particularly, although one of the people we spoke to said that being the front runner for such a long time can sometimes be damaging because people don't want it to become seen as a fait accompli or anything. And so I suppose it was beholden on the chairman to go out there and at least prove that he was doing a full search. Although it must be said that he's kept a very tight leash on this search. Normally when there's a full and thorough external search going on, there are several names that leak out in the process. And this is the first external external name that we've had. How will this go down if indeed there is someone external, a man like Ian Stewart appointed over a woman in terms of the lead internal candidate? How will Sir Howard's decision go down more broadly? Because there had been a lot of excitement, hadn't there, about you know the first CEO of a major British bank being a woman? 
Well, I think this is part of the reason that everybody was so confident that this was in the bag for Alison Rose, because when RBS made that announcement elevating her in November, there was a huge amount of excitement, a lot of stuff written in the press saying that she was on a fast track to become the first female CEO of a big British bank. And so one imagined that the bar for any external candidate that was a man was much higher However, I'm told that he's quite relaxed about this, that he thinks the bank has already gone a significant step further than most of its competitors by appointing a female chief financial officer and thinks that really the bank needs to find the best person for the job regardless of gender. Well, we'll probably find out in the coming weeks, I suspect. We'll keep a close eye on that. Let's move on to our second story. Now, Goldman Sachs is the epitome of the red-blooded investment bank. But in recent months and years, it has branched out into consumer banking. And I talked recently to Harit Talwar, who's the head of Goldman's consumer banking arm, about how this new startup, if you like, within the broader Goldman family has worked out. So Marcus is Goldman's global consumer business, or as we call it, a 150-year-old startup. Our goal is to disrupt consumer financial services Pretty much like, say, Amazon disrupted retail or Apple disrupted the music industry. Because our thesis is that the true innovation is in disrupting the distribution and consumption experience. For example, the Bob Dylan or Neil Diamond song you bought from iTunes or from the large LP which one had to buy earlier. The song is the same, but the distribution and consumption experience is different. That's what we want to do to consumer financial services. It's through that message, but also through pretty generous interest rates, that you've managed to attract a lot of deposits in, well, less than three years in the US and less than a year here in the UK. I think in combination, you've accumulated about $50 billion of deposits. What is the opportunity here? The opportunity is immense. The deposits and savings market between the US and UK is a few trillion dollars. And so if you compare it with the few trillion dollars, our $50 billion, we've got a long runway to grow. On the other hand, you could compare us with some of the largest US banks and their retail deposits tend to be somewhere in the 500 to $800 billion. And they've been doing it with thousands of branches and over multiple number of years. So if you compare with that $50 billion without any branch in less than three years, I think it's pretty respectable. I think it's happened because we focused on providing great value to the consumer in a very simple and transparent way from a brand that they can trust. I think the real secret sauce is in providing great customer centricity, outstanding customer experience, and therefore we are always very focused on execution excellence. Now you're operating in a couple of markets at the moment. You've been talking for some time about Germany being your next market, but as we reported a couple of months ago, that seems to have been delayed somewhat, partly by Brexit and I suspect partly by the interest rate environment looking ever more bleak uh, in terms of being able to charge higher interest rates. What does that mean for your outlook, both in terms of the kind of geographic rollout, but also product rollout? Because I think it's fair to say that as we appear to be reaching the peak of an economic cycle, maybe your original plans to roll out a lot of credit-based products 
or bit you have a consumer loan business in the US, but maybe you're rethinking that to some degree. What I would say is that our global consumer business ambition spreads over many, many, many years. It's a long-term commitment. It's multi-product. It's multi-geography. We've got to do it at the right pace, as you said. Right now, we are very focused on not only growing the businesses that we are in, but we are very excited that we have announced a co-branded credit card with Apple called the Apple Card. This is in the US. And we are expected to launch that this summer. And so for now, we are focused on that. And the point about this maybe not being an ideal time to launch a lot of credit-based products, given that we're at the peak of a cycle? You know, I'm not an economist, so I will not comment on cycles. But as a business person, I would say that we build businesses through the cycles for the long term. But yes, we have around $50 billion of deposits. We've got $5 billion of loans. The difference is not accidental. As a responsible brand, as a responsible lender, we want to make sure that we are building it in the right way. I don't know what the cycle timings are, but yes, we've been in a benign cycle for 12 years and it would be good to be cognizant of that. And a final point, if you're maybe being cautious on the credit extension, I'm guessing you may be more focused on other ways of attracting people's money. You've brought in 50 billion in terms of basic deposits, but maybe some more sophisticated investment products might be next down the line. Yeah, the way we have built our business so far and we continue to thinking about our business is we don't think in terms of product necessarily. We think in terms of customer needs, customer pain points and how we can address them. And the product is merely a solution. But certainly people feel frustrated they can't earn more money on their savings. Yes, and therefore we are focused on giving them high value on the savings in an easy and transparent way. We have a certain set of products for them right now. And for us to expand the range of those products is a logical next sequence. Well, we'll watch this space. Harit Talwa, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. Well, David, you heard what Harit Talwa had to say. Do you buy the vision of Marcus and the broader consumer banking operation within Goldman? Can this work? I have to say he was unlike any other Goldman executive I've ever met. Um, Sounded more like a Silicon Valley chief executive than or founder, if you like, than a Goldman suit. I mean, Obviously, Goldman has had some considerable success at building this very chunky deposit base, but there's a long way to go. And my own impression is that I would have expected us to have a little bit more clarity by now on how the different businesses fit together because they have this cards project with Apple in the States. They have the deposits in the UK, the deposits in the US, but not very clear what it is that they're planning to do with them, still no clarity on what, if anything, they plan to do on the asset side, on lending and so on. And also a sense, I suppose, that the kind of international ambitions are somewhat dimmed. We had expected them to be launching in Germany. That seems to be off the cards for now. Similarly, there were expectations that they would go into Asia. And I'm told that that is a very, very distant possibility at the moment. So I think one still needs a bit more clarity on how this consumer franchise, which seems to be an interesting series of side bets at the moment, ends up becoming a kind of holistic offering for customers. Yeah, at the moment, it just looks like a bit of cheap funding for Goldman, because of course, they've traditionally been funded exclusively in the wholesale Mm -hmm. markets where they've had to pay 
more than they're paying for these deposits in the UK and the US, even though those rates are pretty generous mm-hmm. in the retail market. And I think they've been quite assiduous, especially in the UK, where if they raise too much money, they run the risk of falling foul of the ring fence and having to ring fence those deposits and only use them for UK consumer operations. So they've been quite careful about that. Yeah, because of course, UK ring fencing rules, which don't apply in most countries around the world, mean that once you go above a certain level of deposits, you would have to then go through the nightmare of structurally separating those units, which is precisely what Goldman wouldn't want to have to do. While we keep a close eye on this story as well as it evolves, they've certainly accumulated tens of billions of deposits pretty quickly, and I'm sure their ambition is to do far more, particularly in the US. Finally, let's move on to the Ukraine. We're joined now by Max Seddon in Moscow. Max, thanks very much for joining us. You and some colleagues wrote a fantastically interesting piece about Ukraine's Privat Bank the other day, basically charting the tale of this bank previously owned by Ukrainian oligarch Igor Kolomoisky, which was seized by the Ukrainian authorities. And now he's trying to get it back. That's a very brief summary. Tell us the more lurid details, if you would. Well, Privat Bank was the largest bank in Ukraine, had 33% of all Ukrainian retail deposits, half of all transactional business. There was only one problem, which, according to the central bank, when they nationalized it in 2016, 95% of the entire corporate loan book was going to companies owned by the shareholders, Igor Kolomoisky and the oligarch business partner, Gennady Bogolyubov. So, in effect, the central bank nationalized it because they found that it actually had a $5.5 billion hole in its balance sheet because they were using what the central bank has called a Ponzi-like scheme to launder money. Essentially, the short of it was that they would attract these retail deposits and then use them to give loans to the oligarchs' companies. So what has now changed? Obviously, we've got a new administration in Ukraine, and it sounds like the whole process is being reversed or there's an attempt to reverse it. Yeah, so just a couple of years ago, Kolomoisky was very much on the out. They took his bank away. He was governor of his home province of Dnipro until he was fired by the former president, Petro Poroshenko. He went to Switzerland and then Israel in apparent fear of being extradited to the U.S. over criminal charges relating to Privat Bank. What changed was that one of his protégés became president of Ukraine unexpectedly in a landslide this spring. Volodymyr Zelensky is a comedian who rose to fame on Mr. Kolomoisky's TV channel. If you're an oligarch in Ukraine, historically politics has been controlled by a handful of oligarchs, and you might have your political party that you finance, you have all your assets, and uh, gas, metals, what have you, but the key thing is always a TV channel, because that's how you exercise political influence. So someone who has several people in his entourage who are from the Kolomoisky crowd has now become president, and then Kolomoisky in May abruptly returned to Ukraine for the first time in a couple of years, which is where I interviewed him. So, Mr. Kolomoisky's back in Ukraine. He's positioning himself to recapture this bank, which was once one of his key pillars of power, I suppose. Is he going to succeed? And if he does, what does that tell us about the cleanliness, I suppose, of Ukraine's financial system and financial regulatory structures? Well, this is really a story that goes beyond banking. It's really about the extent to which oligarchs be able to continue to influence Ukrainian politics or whether Zelensky can, as he promised to do in his election campaign, to end this corrupt 
system. So nationalizing the bank was only the beginning of this war between Kolomoisky and Ukraine. And it really shows what Ukraine's biggest problem is in trying to reform its systems and fight corruption because there are huge problems with Ukrainian courts. And so what happened was the Ukrainian government doesn't trust its own court system to deliver fair verdicts against Kolomoisky. So they sued him first in the UK where they lost on jurisdictional grounds and they're trying to appeal that. More recently, they're suing him in the US. Kolomoisky, his business partners and various related parties have filed over 600 lawsuits in Ukraine trying to recover their losses during the nationalization. And he disputes everything. Not only does he say there was no Ponzi scheme, he says the bank wasn't even losing any money. And he says he doesn't want the bank back, but he wants to get this $2 billion in compensation that he claims that he is owed. The issue for Ukraine is that now that the political winds appear to be blowing Kolomoisky's way, even though Zelensky has said that he thinks the nationalization is a done deal and he isn't going to support Kolomoisky, it's still possible if you ask the Ukrainian government that the court system can be abused. There have been several cases in recent months. One ruled that nationalization was illegal. There was another one, this court in a village outside Kiev in the space of a matter of weeks. First, it banned an airline that's a competitor to an airline owned by Kolomoisky, then the same village court ordered the head of banking regulation at the Ukrainian Central Bank to be fired. Kolomoisky, those last two, he says he has nothing to do with them, but that shows you just how problematic the courts can be in Ukraine when these little courts in villages can issue decisions that have very broad repercussions and uh, not always on the strongest of grounds. Well, I think what you've neatly summed up is the pivotal time that we're at in terms of Ukrainian political system, but also clearly the prospects that await both the country's biggest bank and its financial regulatory system are finally poised, I think it's fair to say. Yes, this is a question over whether an oligarch gets to keep his bank and get his deposits and loans back or not. But this is really a much broader question about is Ukraine going to make it? Ukraine has suffered horribly over the course of 25 years from oligarchs and corruption. They've elected with by far the largest mandate ever Zelensky, someone with no experience in politics who's vowed to clean it up. But the big test for him is whether he is going to be able to stand up to his own oligarch supporter to push things through. Because if that doesn't happen, not only will Ukraine struggle to move towards the EU, to reform its own system, to become a more modern country, but also they will be at very real risk of losing the support from the IMF that is helping them avoid default. Clearly one for us to watch very closely. Max, thank you very much for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to David here in the studio, to Max joining us from Moscow, and to our guest, Harriet Talwar from Goldman Sachs. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>